dear listeners, c'est moi, Gundlach, Daniel Gundlach. <laughs> okay, enough silliness. I had to roll with the punches a little bit this week because I had been hoping to do an interview with a most interesting, fascinating, and important person. But unfortunately, she had to reschedule at the last minute. So I have put together a different kind of episode, and I look forward to bringing that interview to you sometime in the early days of season four. Meanwhile, I posted another episode on Patreon this week, this one called More Operatic Queens, featuring other quote-unquote British subjects singing quote-unquote queenly roles. If you are a Patreon supporter, do give it a listen. I think it's a really special and beautiful episode. For those of you who are not yet supporters, please go to patreon.com slash countermelody, where you too can become a supporter of the podcast. For those of you with limited funds, you can gain access to all of this for as little as $2 a month or $25 a year. I'm also putting together a very interesting collection of archival recordings of none other than moi, yours truly, for your listening pleasure. I'll be offering that to my present Patreon supporters, as well as all new people who sign on at any level. So further incentive <laughs> if you want to hear my singing voice for those of you who have been considering becoming Patreon supporters. It's been a busy week around here. I've also created a new intro for season four of the podcast, and I've had my magnificent graphic designer, Joel Richter, tweak the colors of the already fabulous logo that he created for me three years ago. So all that will be rolling out in exactly two weeks. I'm so excited for your support. I'm looking forward to the coming season and to bringing you this introduction to Nyko Divas. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. As always, I am your host, Daniel Gundlach. No preaching here, no lecturing, well, maybe just a tiny bit of each, but the primary spotlight will always be on the singers that enrich and enhance our lives, no matter what is going on in the world around us. Thanks for joining me. And now, this week's episode. When one talks about New York City Opera, and one talks about the divas most associated with the company, there's one who stands out above every other one in the minds of the public. And she was a phenomenon. Of course, I mean Beverly Sills. And here she is, singing one of the roles that first brought her to greater prominence, the ballad of Baby Doe. 
This is the Willow Song. The piece is introduced by its composer, Douglas Moore. What happens is that uh, Baby Doe comes to uh, Leadville and Tabor sees her and uh, later in the evening he's looking in the window and she's sitting and playing the piano and she's singing a song that sounds like an old ballad and Tabor falls very much in love with her as she represents his lost youth and everything else. So this is kind of a romantic song and you can imagine this man listening in the darkness outside and just saying, oh, isn't this wonderful, this, this beautiful girl. recording was from a telecast which, as far as I can trace it, took place in 1962. Now, I'm not going to get too much into the history of city opera itself, 
That is something that I will be discussing with my interview guest in the very near future. But I do want to pay tribute to the extraordinary number and variety of divas that that graced the stage of City Opera, both before its move to Lincoln Center and after. Certainly one of the most historically important singers in the history of City Opera, and I might add, one of the most exquisite, was Camilla Williams, who in 1946 became the first African-American singer to hold a contract with a major U.S. opera company. This is nine years before Marian Anderson made her single set of appearances as Ulrika at the Met. So this is a very important milestone indeed. Her debut at City Opera was in the title role of Madame Butterfly, and it had been coordinated, shall we say, by another great American diva of a previous generation, Geraldine Farrar, herself, of course, a very celebrated butterfly. It was through Farrar's advocacy that Camilla made her debut at City Opera and became a valued member of the company for a number of years. Unfortunately, Camilla did not leave many recordings, but the ones that we have are gems. In 1953, she did make three records for MGM, one of which was a set of severely truncated excerpts from Aida, which also included, by the way, the extraordinary Verdi baritone Lawrence Winters, whom I've also featured on earlier programs and who will be coming up again in season four of Counter Melody. Here, however, is an excerpt from the Vengeance or the Jealousy duet in Act Two between Aida and Amneris. And Amneris in this recording is sung by the very interesting Spanish mezzo soprano Lidia Ibarrondo. Camilla was not by nature an Aida, and yet, as we have encountered so often before on the podcast and in real life, if you're a black soprano, it's almost expected that you're going to sing the title role of Aida. I've expressed my thoughts about this before. I much prefer to see and hear singers singing roles for which they are best endowed by the nature of their voices rather than the color of their skin. And yet we hear what a masterful singer Camilla Williams was. And I will add Lydia Ibarrondo. I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole this morning and discovered some very interesting things about her too. So um, we may be encountering her as well during season four of the podcast. Oh, 
That recording, by the way, was conducted by Lajlo Halash, who was one of a variety of very important conductors in the history of city opera. We're going to hear a number of them over the course of the episode. Now, one of the great American divas was Phyllis Curtin, or as I think now people would pronounce her name, Phyllis Curtin. (laughs) Don't even get me going on that one. Phyllis Curtin was certainly one of the most musically intelligent singers of the 20th century. She also had an enormous repertoire that covered a mind-boggling range of roles. And by the way, we are going to encounter that phenomenon over and over during the course of this episode. One of the most famous roles for which she is celebrated today is the creation of the title role in Carlisle Floyd's Susanna. When Carlisle Floyd died last year, I featured an excerpt from the opera in which we heard my dear friend, the magnificent soprano Mary Mills. Now we are going to hear Curtin herself in a recording of unknown provenance, singing the first of Susanna's big arias, Ain't It a Pretty Night.
there's so much to be said and listened to concerning Phyllis Curtin. All I'm going to say right now is that I will definitely be doing a full episode on her next season. That's a promise. City Opera was really at the forefront in presenting singers of color on its stage. One such singer was the great African-American contralto Carol Bryce, whom I featured in her own special episode about a year and a half ago. But we can't pass over Carol Bryce when considering black singers that appeared at City Opera. When, in the late 1950s, City Opera revived Mark Blitstein's Regina, which was based on Lillian Hellman's The Little Foxes, which had received its premiere on Broadway in 1949, the role of Addie was expanded by Mark Blitstein for Carol Bryce. And this was a new addition to the score, The Aria Night Could Be Time to Sleep. A studio recording was made of this magnificent hybrid piece of musical theater, and we hear Carol Bryce with conductor, oh god, I'm going to slaughter this, Samuel Krachmalnik, or something like that. Crutch. Let's say Krachmalnik, because I have no idea how to say it. Anyway, Crotch sounds a little... <laughs> Samuel Krachmalnik conducting the New York City Opera Orchestra. If you was
City Opera was renowned and celebrated particularly for its commissioning and premiering of new American work. This was one of the things that made the company really an extraordinarily vital place. We've already heard this summer Patricia Newway, who sang a number of premieres there, Neither the Ballad of Baby Doe nor Susanna were premiered at City Opera, but they received very important early productions at the company. One piece which did receive its world premiere at City Opera and which went on to win the Pulitzer Prize in music was Robert Ward's opera based on Arthur Miller's The Crucible. When the opera premiered, it featured an absolutely starry cast of singers who went on to even greater renown, including the marvelous baritone Chester Ludgan in the role of John Proctor, Patricia Brooks as the antagonist, Abigail Williams, we'll be hearing her later in the program, Norman Tregel as one of the prosecuting ministers, Deborah Brown, a fascinating singer whom I'll be discussing at some point in greater detail, Eunice Alberts, a contralto who had a wonderful career primarily as a concert singer, Joy Clements, Harry Thayard. These are all singers that would make their mark at City Opera and beyond. The role of Elizabeth Proctor, John Proctor's wife, was created by Francis Bible, one of a number of extraordinary mezzo-sopranos who appeared on the stage at City Opera, including Martha Lipton, Beverly Wolfe, Joy Davidson, Muriel Costa-Greenspan, Joyce Castle, the list goes on and on. Francis Bible lived from 1919 to January 2001. Her career at City Opera lasted 30 years. She also appeared regionally throughout the United States and also overseas at Nederlandse Oper, in Karlsruhe, with Scottish Opera, and at Gleinborn. Here's her performance of a portion of an aria from the top of Act Two of The Crucible, in which Elizabeth Proctor confronts her husband John and tells him that he is morally obligated to speak out against these witch hunts. Could it be you turn from me? 
by the way, was conducted by Emerson Buckley, who was also the founder of Greater Miami Opera and who conducted frequently at New York City Opera. He conducted not only this recording of The Crucible, but also the City Opera recording of Ballad of Baby Doe with Beverly Sills, Francis Bible, and Walter Castle. Here are just a few of the operas that were commissioned and premiered by City Opera. William Grant Still's Troubled Island, Robert Kirka's The Good Soldier Schweik, Douglas Moore's The Wings of the Dove, Ned Roram's Miss Julie, and there are so, so many others. But of the works with which I am familiar, I would say that my favorite is probably Lizzie Borden, composed by Jack Beeson, to a libretto by Kenward Elmsley. It is an absolutely stunning piece of theater. I think a great deal of the work's success is due to the libretto, which is one of those family gothic, almost horror stories, comparable to, say, Eugene O'Neill's Morning Becomes Electra, which in the Metropolitan Opera's first season at Lincoln Center was given an operatic treatment by Marvin David Levy. Kenward Elmsley was the grandchild of Joseph Pulitzer and also the lover of John Latouche, who wrote, among other things, the libretto for The Ballad of Baby Doe. Latouche died prematurely of a heart attack shortly before the premiere of Baby Doe, but Kenward Elmsley remained ensconced in the home that they had shared for many decades thereafter. 
The opera depicts a uniquely dysfunctional family, and yet one which is, in a way, instantly recognizable. There's Andrew Borden, the patriarch of the household, whose wife has died and who has married the nurse who was his late wife's caregiver. That's Abby. Andrew Borden has two daughters, Lizzie, the elder, and Margaret, the younger. We are given to understand that Lizzie is homely and devotes herself to doing good deeds, whereas Margaret, the prettier one, has sparked the interest of a sea captain named Jason McFarlane. Lizzie loves her sister and wants to support her and also to help her escape from the toxic home life that both their father, a notorious penny-pinching and emotionally ungenerous man, as well as his toxic new wife, Abby, have created under their roof. But Lizzie cracks up and we know what happens. The Lizzie Borden took an axe, etc., etc. And it's interesting because I don't think there's any consensus as to if she actually did these murders or not. But Kenward Elmsley and Jack Beeson are very much of the opinion that she did, and that's how the plot unfolds. And yet the context in which Lizzie performed these murders is presented in lurid detail so that we can only, in the end, empathize with the hapless Lizzie. So that's the setup. I'm going to play you three short excerpts from the studio recording that was made of Lizzie Borden, recorded in 1965, featuring the original cast, conducted by Anton Coppola, whom we have heard over the course of the summer conducting a number of different Broadway cast recordings, and the uncle of film director Francis Ford Coppola. The first is the end of Act One, in which Margaret, Lizzie's younger sister, speaks of the house spying on them and her desperate need to escape from its clutches. The soprano here is Anne Elgar, who was a wonderful light lyric who also performed such roles at City Opera as Sophie in Rosenkavalier. The 
At the beginning of Act Two, we hear Abigail, the stepmother, the newish wife of Andrew Borden, singing a song that I think is remarkably similar to the Willow song that we heard at the top of the episode. I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience where you know that if you sing a song to a suitor, that you might sort of pull them into your orbit and make them fall in love with you. This is what Baby Doe does in the Willow Song, and this is what Abigail does in this song referred to as Abby's Bird Song. Now, she's already netted Andrew Borden, but she wants something from him, and that's why she's singing this particular song at this particular moment. But the soaring lyricism breaks off suddenly into a raging temper tantrum and showing her true colors. This, I think, is just a wonderful illustration of the brilliance of both composer and librettist. The soprano we hear in the role of Abigail is Ellen Fall, who had a 35-year association with the company beginning in the 1940s, an association which included roles as varied as Donanna, Butterfly, Aida, Lady Billows in the U.S. premiere of Britain's Albert Herring, and Eva in Meisterzinger. In later years, she became a celebrated teacher, one of the most famous in New York. As Andrew Borden, we briefly hear Herbert Beatty, who was another fantastic city opera bass.
tuner in the morning. Money, please, there's nothing the tuner can do. This harmonium belonged to Evangeline's mother. It's worn out, simply worn out. The reeds are broken here and here and here. Too many tunes, too many tears. The finish looks as good as new. The singer that really made Lizzie Borden catch fire, though, was the extraordinary Brenda Lewis. Brenda Lewis was a true Zwischenfach singer. Her roles encompassed both mezzo-soprano and soprano parts. She created the role of Birdie in Mark Blitzstein's Regina, absolutely a soprano role, and went on to play the title role of Regina in the City Opera Revival, which was also recorded and in which we heard Carol Bryce earlier. At the Met, her roles included Rosalinde, Salome, Musetta, and Marie in Wozzeck. And yet, her repertoire also included roles normally associated with mezzos these days, such as Carmen, Marina in Boris Godunov, and this, the title role of Lizzie Borden. This is the very end of Lizzie's mad scene, the act to curtain. The opera was also filmed in 19, I think it was 1965, for the newly created National Educational Television, and as such, it is available as a stunning video from our friends at VAI. This, however, is from the studio recording. Oh. 
sticks. There were so many great divas that appeared at City Opera, and some of them are not so well remembered today. And I want to feature three of them, all named Patricia, coincidentally. The first, and I think one of the most extraordinary singers of that time, was Patricia Brooks, who lived from 1933 to 1993. She began as a dancer, studying with Martha Graham, but following a knee injury, she turned instead to the world of singing and acting. She was a chorus member in the original Sound of Music and made her debut in 1960 at City Opera as Marianne Letzmerin in Rosenkavalier. She had a voice of great power and beauty and flexibility. And I would say her career was really centered at City Opera, where she performed both world premieres and roles such as Violetta, Gilda in Rigoletto, and Massonet's Manon. This role, of course, was one of Beverly's specialties, and so it was rather remarkable, let's say, that Brooks's Manon was equally celebrated. I have an excerpt of Patricia Brooks singing Manon from a live performance in Vancouver in 1969. This is Je suis encore tout étourdi, which reveals so much about the singer and the character both. And I must say, Patricia Brooks is positively brilliant in this part. Thank you. 
unfortunately suffered from multiple sclerosis and retired early at the age of only 43 and died in January 1993 at the age of 59. But she is not forgotten, at least not around here. The second Patricia from this period that we are going to celebrate today is Patricia Wells, a singer similar in voice type, I would say, to Patricia Brooks. It's interesting that for a singer who was so celebrated in her day, I'm not able to find all that much out about Patricia Wells off the top of my head. Her debut at City Opera was in 1972 as Michaela she also sang Rosalinde there, and she made recordings under both Newell Jenkins and Leonard Bernstein. The recording that I'm going to share with you of Patricia Wells is of her doing the role of Teresa in Berlioz's Benvenuto Cellini. A couple of weeks ago, I played an excerpt, I think it was on the bonus episode, of Donald Graham singing the Pope in that opera. And here is a very truncated version of Patricia Wells displaying her coloratura facility as well in the aria that in French is called Conjure Vautrage, and in this English translation is called I May Discover. The conductor here is Sarah Caldwell, whose career we dipped our toes into in the Donald Graham episodes. I may discover when I am that my dear father was always wiser. I may discover twenty years from now. 
the music director at City Opera during the 1960s and into the 70s was the celebrated Maestro Julius Rudel, and we shall hear him in a few minutes. He was succeeded in that role by the conductor we're going to hear next, Christopher Keene, who lived from 1946 to 1995. He was music director of City Opera from 1982 to 1986, and he succeeded Beverly Sills as general director of the opera company in 1989, a position he held until his death from AIDS in 1995 at the age of 48. We're going to hear him in one of his earlier appearances at City Opera. That was in a wonderfully innovative production of Ariadne of Naxos, in which the singers in the prologue sing in English, and the performers in the opera seria portion of the opera sing in German. And during the opera proper, the Commedia dell'arte characters continue to sing in English. Now, who are we going to hear? Well, first of all, the third Patricia of the triumvirate, Patricia Wise, who was a magnificent soprano. She's still with us. She went on to sing Lulu at the Châtelet, among other parts. She is the high-flying and dizzyingly seductive Zerbinetta here, and I'm going to play you the excerpt from the prologue in which she seduces the composer into acceding to the performance of the Commedia dell'arte troupe simultaneously with the performance of his opera seria. The composer here is sung by Olivia Stapp, who at this point was still billing herself as a mezzo-soprano. I am of the opinion that the composer should be sung by a soprano and not a mezzo. And Olivia Stapp, in fact, did go on to become a soprano and to sing the biggest, most challenging of the dramatic soprano roles, everything from Tosca to Abigail in Nabucco. She has such a refulgent top that you hear her, in fact, sounding very much like a soprano. This is a portion of that duet from the prologue of Ariadne of Naxos. By the way, this recording's from 
the other diva in that production of Ariadne was the great Montana-born jugendlich dramatisch soprano Johanna Meyer, who went on to triumph at the Met and and around the world, including at Bayreuth, in the jugendlich and dramatic soprano repertoire. Here she is, early on in her career, singing a portion of Es gibt ein Reich from that same performance of Ariadne of Naxos. At the very beginning of the episode, we talked about the important role that City Opera played in presenting Black artists on its stage. My regular listeners will remember that Adele Addison, that venerable artist who recently celebrated her 97th birthday, sang numerous parts at City Opera, though of course she was first and foremost a concert artist. 
one of the most charming and least represented on records of those African-American divas was Veronica Tyler. I took note of Veronica Tyler's passing in March of 2020, but I could not find any recordings in which to feature her. She had a very distinguished career. She's one of those extraordinary singers who seem to have somehow vanished from our awareness. In her very early career, she was featured on one of Leonard Bernstein's Young People's Concerts that was televised. From there, she went on to an international career, which included performances at Washington Opera, the Met, San Francisco, and the Fenice in Venice. In preparing this episode, I got my hands on some extraordinarily rare live material that was recorded by a third party that I do not know. He passed those recordings on to a friend of mine who quite generously also gave them to me. The next few recordings that we're going to hear to round off the episode are all from that extraordinary cache of recordings. First, we are going to hear from the inaugural season of City Opera in its new home at Lincoln Center, a performance of the Magic Flute that features Veronica Tyler. May I also remind you that just across the plaza, the Met in its own inaugural season at Lincoln Center was producing its own magnificent production of The Magic Flute with a marvelous cast and decors by Marc Chagall. City Opera may not have had Chagall decors, but it had a fantastic cast, including Veronica Tyler as Pamina, Beverly Sills as the Queen of the Night, John Reardon as Papageno. Now, I don't know how this guy's name is pronounced, if it's Michele Molese or Michael Molise, I honestly don't know, but he was the Tamino. Nico Castell as Monostatos, Noel Mangan as Zarastro, and Thomas Paul as the speaker. Julius Rudell was the conductor, and we are going to hear the late, great Veronica Tyler as Pamina singing Ah, I Feel It, as it's known in the English translation used here, or Ach, Ich Fuß in the original German.
Another Nyko diva whom I fear that too many of us took for granted during her prime, but now when we look back we see what an extraordinary singer she actually was, is the Mexican soprano Hilda Cruz Romo, who not only made an enormous impact at City Opera, but also was the prima donna of the Mets B-casts in Verdi roles, and who also was celebrated for her performances the world over. I am definitely, definitely, definitely doing a full program on Hilda Cruz Romo in the next season. She left no commercial recordings, and yet there is quite a bit of documentation of her live performances. Thank goodness. I'm going to play you a portion of the role of her city opera debut, Margherita in Mephistofele. This performance is from the 10th of March, 1971, and Julius Rudel, once again, is the conductor.
Perhaps the most extraordinary of those city opera divas was Marilyn Niska, one of two California-born sopranos with whom this episode is going to conclude. Marilyn Niska was born in San Pedro, California, on November 16, 1926, and died in New Mexico on the 9th of July, 2016. She was one of the most extraordinarily versatile divas to appear at City Opera. Her roles included the Countess in Figaro, Suor Angelica, Marguerite in Faust, Violetta in Traviata, the governess in Turn of the Screw, both Mimi and Musetta, Tosca, Don Anna and Don Elvira, Elettra in Idomeneo, Medea, La Voix Humaine, Fanciulla del West, both Santuzza in Cavalleria and Nedda in Pagliacci, which, yes, she sang in the same performance, thank you very much, Zalome, and the role for which she was probably most celebrated, Emilia Marti in The Macropolis Case which was one of the most dazzling of the productions directed by Frank Corsaro, another figure that we will be discussing when we talk about the entire history of city opera. He certainly was one of the most important directors. His productions of Macropoulos, Die Tote Stadt, Faust and Traviata were all legendary. With all that lead-up, I'm not actually going to play Macropolis for you. You can find an excerpt from that on YouTube, and by all means do, because it's really worth hearing. But what I have for you is something a little bit rarer, and that is a portion of Yaroslavna's Lament, sung in English, from Borodin's Prince Igor, a new production of which City Opera mounted in 1969, also directed by Frank Corsaro. It is one of that cache of very rare recordings that have been given to me to use on the podcast. So I can't help but use this, especially because it shows off the beauty of Marilyn Niska's voice. She was mostly known as a powerhouse interpreter, and she had a lot of vocal heft behind her. I think that's obvious given some of the roles that she sang. Here's another singer that I will be featuring in her own episode because there's so much to listen to, and thank goodness there's also a lot of live material.
This was not the Nyko Diva episode that I planned, but nevertheless, I think we've heard a sampling of the wide range of extraordinary singing that was going on on the stage of City Opera. The last singer we're going to hear today is one of my very favorite singers of all time, and that is another soprano who was born and who died in California. That is Carol Neblet, and I say her name with reverence because I believe that Carol Neblet was the greatest U.S. American lyric soprano after Eleanor Stieber. There, I've said it. What an extraordinary artist. Her technique was so solid. Her acting was so extraordinary. She made headlines because of her beauty, but that was the tip of the iceberg. She sang so much and with great ease everything to Margherita in Mephistofele, to Die Totestadt, to Ariadne, to Popea, to Tosca, to Thais, to Violetta, also to Yaroslavna, Manon, Louise, Countess, and later Aida, Ballo in Maschera, Senta, Turando, and of course her phenomenal mini in La Fanciulla del West, for which she is still remembered and celebrated. I cannot say enough about this singer. I love her with all my heart. She did have some career setbacks and personal difficulties, but I don't believe in focusing on those. Instead, I want to play you one of those very rare recordings that just appeared on my computer a couple weeks ago. That is her performance of just the final part of the Jewel song from a live performance of Faust in 1970. When this performance took place, she had only just turned 24 years old. And the ease of her singing just completely blows me away. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to see her on the stage. I'm definitely planning at least a full episode on Carol Neblet, and I hope a lot more in the coming season. But for now, I'm going to see you off with her extraordinary Marguerite in Faust in this live performance from the 24th of February, 1970.
keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach.